0: Well, you want to get out your sermon outline that says the King's Triumphal Entry on it. We're at Matthew chapter 21, starting today, and uh, providentially, we are looking at. Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. Amazing how that worked out. The, uh, I'm sure it was a mere coincidence. It does mean the cleansing of the temple is next, and we get that on Easter. So you'll have to come back and see how do we get from to Easter from the cleansing on the temple, because we're going to get there. So I promise you. But now we're at the beginning of Matthew chapter 21, first 11 verses, and if you would turn there in your Bibles, I encourage you to bring your Bibles or your various electronic devices. You can read along in the bulletin. One way or other. get God's Word in front of you. That would be great. So Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, please listen carefully as this is the Word of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. A word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us once again to this amazing, wonderful gospel to learn about your son Jesus. So we ask this morning you would give us the grace to understand what you are teaching us here. Help us to understand what it means to follow Jesus and not ourselves. Help us to understand who Jesus really is, that he's our Lord, our Savior, and our King. So by your spirit, open this word to us. Help us to see Jesus do this for us this morning. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Who was Jesus? He is the subject of countless stories in the modern press. Every year around Christmas and Easter, the major online and print magazines all have articles about Jesus. Why? Well, first of all, because stories about Jesus sell. People find Jesus endlessly fascinating, even if they don't believe he's the Lord, the Savior, the King, and God the Son. His story is captivating even on a non-spiritual level. Jesus launched a worldwide religious movement. And the articles, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm sure are going to come out, and some will say Jesus was a revolutionary. Jesus was subversive. Jesus was radical. And if you just stop there with the fascinating story, then you've missed the point. Because Jesus' actions, Jesus' business, if you will, wasn't primarily about subverting human systems, be they political, social, or religious. Mostly he sought to subvert human beings and our deep-seated belief that we can earn the kingdom of God all by ourselves. He wasn't just subverting this Jewish exclusivism. He's condemning the chronically self-justifying human heart. And so today we're in Matthew 21, which begins with the well-known recounting of the triumphal entry. But in order to understand this chapter and this story, you have to realize that Matthew 21 is driving at one main point. And that main point is there's only one key to the kingdom of God. Only one key, the king himself. Jesus' aim throughout the story is to undermine all else and anything else that pretends to be the key. So as we read in the Gospel of John, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, we're learning about the life of Jesus. And so you might say we're doing a biography of Jesus, and we're celebrating Palm Sunday today. John, don't feel bad, I have a tie with a palm tree on it, so you're in good company. I hope, maybe you're in bad company. Um, But interestingly enough, uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, begins the last week of Jesus' life. And I want you to think about that for a moment. In the Gospel of Mark, the triumphal entry comes in chapter 11 of 16 chapters. There's five chapters to go. In the Gospel of Luke, it's in chapter 19 of 24 chapters. Again, five chapters to go. In the Gospel of John, it's in chapter 12 of 21 chapters, nine chapters to go. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, it's in chapter 21 of 28 chapters, leaving seven chapters to go. In other words, so much of what the Bible tells us about Jesus' life is about that last week. Now, since we're creating a biography here and we're looking at the life of Jesus, we have to realize that there's an awful lot left for us to cover. There's a lot that happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, between the triumphal entry and the death of Christ, There's a lot that happens between Good Friday, the death of Christ, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. And there's a lot that happens between the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, where he lives and reigns in heaven today. So what we have here at the beginning of Jesus last week is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry. So let's do what we do and make some observations first. If you're going to study a passage of the Bible, you have to do a lot of noticing things first. You can't just say, what does it mean? You have to start noticing things, making observations, and there's always more uh, that's there than you notice the first time around. So let's do a little noticing and ask ourselves then later what it means. So as I've just said, this is a well-known story. But what I'm asking you to do this morning is to notice new things about an old story. Notice new things about an old story. So let me point out a few things I think are important for us to notice in this old story. First of all, let's take a look at the context. Because there is a crisis that forms the context for this entire incident. Verse 1 tells us, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, We know right before this happened, they're on this road. And Matthew tells us that two blind men cried out to him at the end of Matthew 20, which we looked at uh, previously. And we read there, Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And so as we read before, Jesus heals them. And now you might say, okay, that's great. One more miracle along the way. But you have to realize what this means for Matthew 21 in the triumphal entry. This is the first time that Jesus has been given this messianic title, Son of David, and he's allowed it to be said in public. Who is the son of David? When the blind men call out son of David, everybody knew who that was. The son of David is the messianic king who'd been predicted for centuries. The son of David is the ultimate king, the final king of the world. So for the first time, somebody cries out in public. And what they're saying is, oh messianic king, oh ultimate king, final king of the world. And Jesus looks at them and says, yes. (coughs) And everybody gasps. In particular, the apostles would have gasped. Because the apostles, from the very beginning, had wanted Jesus to openly declare himself a king. They knew about his power. They knew what he could do. They knew about the miracles. They wanted him to come out and publicly proclaim it because that would force the issue. And so now he does it. And they gasp, because they know what this means. It means we have a crisis on our hands. When Jesus publicly proclaims himself to be the Messiah, the ultimate king, that means he either has to triumph and take the kingship, Or he'll be crushed by the authorities who will be forced to crush him. So, when the disciples hear the blind men say, Son of David, and Jesus says, Yes, that's me, they're shocked. The hair on the back of their necks must have stood up. They were probably simultaneously thrilled and terrified because they know this is now do or die time. He either has to triumph or be destroyed. This is the final sprint to the top. This is it. Everything's happening now. Time's running out. They're on the way to Jerusalem, and now he's openly declared himself to be the king. That's the first thing we have to see is this great drama, this dramatic tension that happens right before our passage. But then the next thing we have to notice is the choice of the steed, the animal. He chooses a donkey. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Disciples are happy their master is finally doing something right. You know, he's been very mysterious about his kingship. Every time they start to say, Jesus, let's go, let's take power, let's take over, you can raise the dead, you can still the storm, we can kick the Romans out. And Jesus is always making these mysterious statements about suffering and all that negative stuff. And so finally, finally, he's doing something right. But instead of getting on this big war horse to ride in as the victorious, conquering king, what's he doing? And here's the thing, the steed of a king is not a donkey. Who rides a donkey? Servants ride donkeys. It's not the steed of a king, it's the steed of a Servant. We'll get back to that in a moment because there's more to the choice of a donkey. But you can just imagine the disciples saying, finally, this is more like it. But you know, when we get to Jerusalem, we're going to have to get a good PR guy because Jesus doesn't have good instincts about this PR stuff. I mean, this doesn't look right. He's sending mixed si- signals here. You know, he's coming in as like a wandering guru, this gentle servant. Or is he really the ultimate king who's going to kick the Romans out? You know, we're going to have to do something about this. And they're not entirely wrong. You have to notice that Jesus is sending mixed messages. He's sending this very enigmatic message. It's at the heart of the celebration. What does it all mean? Well, here's what it means. In verse 5, there's a very striking phrase. Behold, your king is coming to you humble." I think that's the key phrase of the whole passage, but it's very subtle and not a little deceiving because when this passage starts, the first thing that we notice is that it seems that Jesus takes charge, that Jesus takes charge. That should be the first blank there in your outline, I hope. We're going to start with both the beginning and the end of the passage, starting with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And now jumping down to verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, Now, you have to notice, and this is something fairly new to me. I really hadn't noticed this until yesterday, is that Jesus Christ is very much in charge. In fact, Jesus Christ arranges his triumphal entry, he orchestrates his triumphal entry. Remember, the gospel writers are very concise people, they don't spend a lot of time on unnecessary things. But six verses, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8, are given to Jesus Christ, arranging his triumphal entry. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always sort of pictured it like Jesus is you know, going up to Jerusalem and everybody's saying, Hail, Son of David! And he looks around and says, Oh shucks. Okay, you know, sure, I'll, I'll get on up here. That's fine. And I always thought it's sort of this you know, humility approach. But that's not how it happens. You know, listen, Jesus is absolutely in control. He arranges the triumphal entry. If you want to see it, just look. First of all, he sends his disciples into Bethphage. That's actually not how you pronounce that, but the Hebrew sounds kind of like French, and it's weird, so we're going to stick with that. Bethphage and Bethany, which are sort of the English pronunciations. Two villages right outside Jerusalem. They're very close to each other. Jesus knows them well. Bethany is the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So we know that Jesus spent a lot of time there. He knew the village. He would know where the animals are. Secondly, there's probably no other crowd anywhere in all of Palestine that understands the power of Jesus. The disciples did, but if you're looking for a crowd, this is the place to go get a crowd. This is a crowd had seen the raising of Lazarus. They knew who he was. They knew about his glory. They knew about his power there. No one else, no other crowd had ever seen anything like this. So you see, when Jesus sends his disciples in to get a donkey, people have always assumed, well, that's pretty interesting. Surely Jesus must have made some arrangement with the owner. People have debated this for years. Surely Jesus would have made some arrangement. I mean, he just wouldn't go in and take a donkey. He wouldn't do that. It doesn't tell us that he made an arrangement. It doesn't tell us there were any advanced plans. As a matter of fact, he very clearly expects that when they walk in and get the donkey, they're going to get questioned. People are going to say, what are you doing? What's going on? Who said you could take our donkey? You know. And Jesus says, well, make sure you let them know that I'm going to be riding it. Tell them the Lord needs it. And if you look carefully, you see down in verse 8, the disciples uh, went and they did exactly as Jesus had instructed them. And in verse 9, this very large crowd up here spread their cloaks on the road and others were cutting branches and they went ahead of him and they followed him. And they're all shouting. And now in verse 10 we're told that when Jesus entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred. This crowd is not from Jerusalem. This crowd was gathered outside of Jerusalem. They went before and after. So when does the crowd arrive? They arrive when the donkey arrives. Why? because the crowd is also from Bethany and Bethphage. Jesus Christ has orchestrated all of this. In a sense, he has sent for the crowd, not just the donkey. He's in total control. He's forcing the issue, and he's making sure that when he comes into Jerusalem, it's being declared as loudly as possible, confronting Jerusalem and the leaders of Jerusalem Uh, Jerusalem with his claims of his kingship. Now, if you understand the passage, first thing you have to realize is that Jesus is forcing the issue. He's not reluctant. Jesus is incredibly humble, but not at all modest. Think about that. He's incredibly humble, but not at all modest. I mean, he's got incredible sensitivity, incredible compassion, incredible tenderness, But there's no way you can call him modest. The thing that's so unique about Jesus is with regard to other people, he's unbelievably humble, incredibly humble, loving, gentle, tender, compassionate, caring, uh, incredibly. But when it comes to dealing with himself, with one exception earlier in Matthew, there's not a shred of modesty. He's continually making incredible claims. He's basically saying over and over again, by his words and by his actions, ultimate king of the universe? Yes. On every page, Jesus is the most immodest person who ever lived. He's always forcing his identity on you, his kingship. He's always confronting you. He's always making sure you hear it. He's not going to slip into Jerusalem quietly listen when Jesus Christ comes to any city or when he comes to any person he's saying crown me or kill me no middle ground Jesus is forcing everybody's hand crown me or kill me listen if he comes to you intellectually emotionally spiritually he's going to do the same thing crown me or kill me when he comes to you intellectually he says I am the king What he's doing is saying, You can despise me as a lunatic. You can throw everything over and serve me completely, but there's nothing in the middle. No person with any intellectual integrity can do that. I won't allow you to. Crown me or kill me. Nothing else. So, intellectually, he comes like that, but he also comes to you that way emotionally, to your heart. If you come to him and say, Jesus, you know, I'd like some help, I need some inspiration. If you come to them and say, I'd like you to be my consultant. You know, I'd like you to be my partner. You know, my co-pilot. Or my counselor. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, I can be way more than that. I can be your shepherd, I can be your brother, I can be your guide, I can be your friend. But I won't be anything unless I'm your king. Crown me or kill me. Either I'll be king or I'll be nothing. I want all of you or none of you. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the message of Palm Sunday. Crown me, that's fine. Or kill me. At least if you want to kill me, if you're screaming at me, if you're angry with me, well, at least you're listening to me. Crown me or kill me. Throw everything over and make me the supreme absolute monarch of your life or despise me. But I won't just be liked. I won't be liked. Worship me, kill me, hate me, but don't just like me. I won't let you like me. Crown me or kill me. The die is cast. That's the confrontational nature of his kingship. By the way, we all know there's a lot of people out there, maybe even some of you, who think what I just said is pretty extreme. Extreme. You'd like to admire Jesus. You'd like to pray to him sometimes. But you really don't like the whole idea that he has to be the very center of my life. I have to give him unconditional surrender or nothing at all. You don't like that. And I'm trying to point out that Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he comes to everybody's heart and he's saying, crown me or kill me. Nothing in the middle. Deal with it. He doesn't actually say deal with it. I mean, I said that, but that's the point. And there are a lot of people who may not like that. Didn't like it then and don't like it now. And I hope you're not mad at me. But if you don't like it, I hope you're mad at Jesus. Because that's what he's trying to do. I'm sure there are some people here who say, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe that, and you may be cheering on what I just said. Thank you for the emotional support. But let me suggest to you, don't let yourself off the hook. Because I'm not trying to let you off the hook. This is a, a really important issue. You know, one of the funniest stories in the Bible is in Acts 19. It, it, uh, Paul is planting a new church in Ephesus. And there are seven men called the seven sons of Siva and the seven sons of Siva hear that Paul's doing these great miracles in the name of Jesus so they say, well maybe the name of Jesus has real power, let's try it out so they go to this demon-possessed man and they say "This I think this is actually pretty funny they say, in the name of Jesus, you know the one whom Paul preaches? in the name of Jesus I cast you out and the demon-possessed man looks at them and he says, hmm Jesus I know, Paul I know who the heck are you? And then he jumps on them and beats them up. And they run away. And I think that's pretty funny. I know. Total depravity, my spiritual gift, all that. But here's what he's saying. The power of Jesus is not magic. It's not mechanical. It's kingly power. Unless you're submitting to Jesus, there's no power. Friends, if you're asking for help and you're asking for strength, but you're not submitting to him and you're not obeying him, that's just magic. The name of Jesus is not mechanical power. It's not abstract power. It's not magical power. It's kingly power, and it doesn't work without submission. That's the reason Jesus comes into the city and says, unless I'm king, I'm nothing to you. I'm not savior unless I'm king. I'm not helper unless I'm king. I'm not brother unless I'm king. I'm not lord unless I'm king. Crown me or kill me. But see, then the whole paradoxical, paradoxical nature of Jesus comes into play, because we go from this confrontational demand of crown me or kill me, and we have this giant mood swing. And then we see right in the middle, verses 4 and 5, and I think the key part of this text, is that Jesus comes humbly. Jesus comes humbly. There it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, we've already mentioned this whole thing about the donkey. Here's Jesus riding a donkey. Now, one of the reasons he does it, of course, the main reason uh, he does it, as Matthew points out, Uh, is there's prophecies in the Old Testament that said when the son of David, the messianic king, would come, he'd be riding on a donkey. So he's fulfilling messianic prophecy. And there's several uh, messianic prophecies. One of those texts is in Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verses 10 and 11 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fold to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What that's saying is the great king is going to come in the future, and when he comes, all nations, everybody will bow to him, and he's going to put everything right. You notice that reference to washing his robes in the wine of grapes. What he's saying is going to make things so right that we'll be a wash in prosperity. No more thorns and vinegar. There's going to be wine and celebration. And there's going to be so much wine flowing, you'll be able to wash your clothes in it. And yet, the trouble with this whole thing, this whole image, you still have to deal with the question of what kind of king rides a donkey? How are you going to win? How are you going to conquer anything on a donkey? How are you going to beat the oppressors? Zechariah, we have the same thing. Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. See, your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. He has to come humbly if he's riding on a donkey. It's just hard to project that victorious, conquering king when you're on a donkey. But really, to, to, to ride on a donkey, and despite all the king's stuff, is to take the position of a servant. And I'll tell you one thing, and this is certainly what the disciples knew and what the people uh, would have known. Any king who rides into battle on a donkey is going to get slaughtered. You're better off on foot. You'd be way better off on a fast horse. But if you ride in on a donkey, you're going to get slaughtered. And with all due respect, I'm trying to say, Jesus is coming in, riding like a servant. He's riding to the slaughter. He knows that. And to be humble is to be vulnerable, to be defenseless. And why is Jesus doing this? Well, here's why. Right here, as usual, we have in this strange passage of riding on a donkey, we have the gospel. It's right here. We have the gospel in a nutshell. Sin is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. Therefore, salvation is the king putting himself in the place of a servant. Let me say that again. Sin is the servant, you, putting yourself in the place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in your place, in the place of the servant. And there's more uncomfortable stuff to come. Because sin is revealed by what's wrong with the world. And what is wrong with the world? There's all sorts of stuff. What can cause, on one hand, something as terrible as the Holocaust, and on the other hand, the fact that you're worried about something this morning. And those are extremes. I mean... The Holocaust happened because people put themselves in the place of God. The servant, putting himself in the place of the king. That's what caused the Holocaust. On the other hand, do you know why you're worried? Do you know why you're upset? Because you believe you know how your life's supposed to go. You have enough wisdom, and you're putting yourself in the place of the king. Every problem, all of our misery, all of our fighting, everything is caused by sin, and sin is the servant putting himself or herself in the place of the king therefore what are we going to do about it what are we going to do about the horrible state of our world other religions said we send messengers and tell everybody please stop putting yourself in the place of the king but christianity says that's like sending a band-aid for a sucking chest wound christianity says the king comes and puts himself in the place of the servant. The king comes. Whereas sin is humanity putting itself where only God should be. Salvation is God coming and putting himself where we should be, receiving the death penalty, dying for our sins. That's the gospel. And it's right here. You see what Jesus is doing? Can you hear it? He's riding on this donkey instead of this great war horse, and he's saying to everybody, I'm the king, but I'm not the king like you think. What if I did free you from the Romans? You realize if I freed you from the Romans, that's the only freedom I gave you, you turn around and enslave somebody else. Why? Because if I freed you from the Romans, what are you going to do about your guilt? What are you going to do about that deep spiritual emptiness that you have? What are you going to do about the fact that you're desperately trying to prove yourself? What are you going to do about your real slavery? While you're trampling down other races and other classes to prove to yourself that you're significant, you have a slavery that goes far deeper than the slavery of Rome. If all I do is free you from Rome, what are we going to do about freeing you from death? which is the thing that's running your life and causing all this misery in the world. I've come to give you real freedom. See the paradox here? What's so beautiful about this is we have this humble king, a dying king, a servant king, a king who's higher than the heavens, and yet comes so low, the king on a donkey. And if this king comes into your life, he'll turn you into a humble king. The whole point of the gospel is we're saved through weakness, not strength. Every other religion, every other philosophy, whether you get it from something that's thousands of years old or you made it up yourself, they're all the same. What they all say is I'm going to clean up my life and do better, be better, get better. I'm going to be saved and saved through strength. That's what the disciples want. Save us through strength. Let's kick out the Romans. And Jesus says, no, you can't be saved until you see that you're weak. You can't be saved until you see that you're weak. Jesus comes in and he dies in our place, which means we're not saved by our strength. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by our own moral efforts. We're saved by his efforts. If you're a Christian, you know you're saved by weakness. If you know you're saved by the humble king, then you'll be a humble king. On the one hand, when things go wrong, you say, well, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve it to uh, have it go well. But on the other hand, I'm loved by Jesus. I'm accepted by Christ. I'm welcomed by Christ. So this thing that's happened to me is not a punishment. God has some good thing that he's going to do in my life through this. You see, if you understand this paradoxical nature of his kingship, if you understand you're saved through weakness, That's the message of Palm Sunday, that this humble kingship, this salvation through weakness, it's going to be recaptured in you and in your life. He'll recreate himself in you. He'll live in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you'll become more and more like Jesus. But first, you have to answer the question. We find that question in verse 10. Who is this? Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the king is coming, and people are asking, who is this? And you have to answer, because after all, Jesus demands a response. Jesus demands a response. Finally, we see this humble entrance into Jerusalem by King Jesus, and by coming into Jerusalem this way, he's demanding a response We said in the first three verses, he's drawing attention to his person and work by making a claim, a very bold claim, to be the king. And then in verses 4 and 5, he's drawing attention again to his person and work to being humble by rooting his claim in the fulfillment of Scripture. He's saying, not only am I a king, but I'm a humble king. And this action that I'm taking, I'm fulfilling the predictions made by the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah. And now he's forcing a response to who he is, saying, I'm not satisfied with you just saying, okay, well, so what? I'm going to force you to take a position, crown me or kill me. He's demanding a response from the people in Jerusalem, and of course he's demanding a response from anyone who reads this passage, even us today. Now, the crowds, as we can see, they're initially very enthusiastic They're joining together. They're saying very positive things about Jesus. Though you have to remember, the crowd at the end of the week is going to be shouting, crucify him. Now that, among other things, ought to remind us that living life according to the polls is not a bright thing to do. Jesus knows exactly what's going on with the crowds. He's not allowing himself to be uh, drawn along by them. He's out uh, and about conducting his father's business. Now, there's three basic responses uh, in the crowd among all these people to Jesus. We've seen some people very positive in their support for Jesus, but they're very superficial in their knowledge of Jesus and who he is. They're, They're very positive about Jesus, they're excited, their initial support, but they're superficial in their knowledge of him. How do we know that? Well, when they ask who he is, what's the answer? They said he's, he's a prophet from Nazareth. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, they may have meant he's the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, but I doubt it. Clearly, as their support melts away later in the week, we see their knowledge of who Jesus is is superficial. So that's the first response. It's positive, but it's superficial. second one comes from Jerusalem itself. From the people in the city when he arrives what's their response and it's one of ignorance what's their question this is their question verse 10 who is this he's been in Jerusalem before yet the people are saying who is this so there's ignorance and and there's superficial knowledge and what's the third response well we know from previous passages and from ones still to come that there's Pharisees in the crowd in the multitudes in the city we're gonna see that in a few verses And their response was, of course, deliberate opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's tempting for us to think, you know, in the end, that's the only thing that gets you into real trouble, is deliberate opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. But Matthew is making it clear that all three of those responses are inadequate. And they'll get you nothing but hell. Positive view but superficial knowledge of Jesus, ignorance about Christ, opposition to Christ, all of those bring us condemnation. We have to deal with Jesus. Indifference to Jesus is defiance. Superficiality about Jesus is dangerous. Opposition to Jesus is fruitless. We must bow the knee. That's the fourth response, and that's the only saving response to the Lord Jesus Christ. We bow the knee, we acknowledge Him to be our King. We acknowledge Him to be our Lord. We acknowledge Him to be our Savior. We acknowledge that in Him alone we can find salvation. As the second membership vow says, we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the Gospel. That's the only saving response to Jesus Christ. If we're ignorant about Jesus, if we're apathetic about Jesus, we're in the same fix as those who opposed him because he's the king. He's the only king. He's the only hope of salvation. Every time this passage is read, the question is put, what do you think of Jesus? Who is this? Who do you say that I am? And there's only one saving response to that, and that issue is pressed in on all of us today. If you think well of Jesus but haven't embraced him as your Lord and Savior, the challenge of this text is set before you. Crown him or kill him. On the last day, only those who have embraced him as Lord and bowed the knee to him as king will find the grace and mercy and blessing and salvation for which he died. May God help us to answer that question wisely. Who is? is this. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.